Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. That's my word of the day today on Nothing Personal. It's really ha-ash. Yeah, were you watching the game last night in Mexico City? Chargers Chiefs? Well, if you watch the anthem in the beginning, there was a duo who I'd never heard of, but they've been recording since 2003. They're called ha-ash after the two first names. Why is this noteworthy? Because the NFL was not trying to appeal to me. They were trying to appeal to all of their (coughs) fans internationally. And it's going well. They've got a big lead over the other leagues, and the other leagues are doing everything they can to try to catch the NFL. It's not just Europe now. You're talking about Mexico. Next is Asia. NBA does not have the only deal going on in China right now. So anytime you hear ha-ash or hash, just know that it's the NFL trying to be the IFL, the International Football League. I'm watching the Clippers game last night, all excited to try to see Paul George and Kawhi Leonard finally play together. All I heard about this whole offseason is that it's the big two, and this is going to challenge the Lakers with LeBron and Antonio Davis. Well, due to Kawhi's load management and Paul George's injury, we really haven't seen them together at all. So not just Anthony Davis and LeBron, we watch them all the time, but Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, it's been This many times. So what happened last night? Kawhi was actually now really injured. He has a knee contusion. It's not load management. They didn't call it that. They'll probably wait till the end of the week to do it. What I'm finding fascinating is that for whatever reason, the Clippers believe that having their two best players only play around 15 to 20 games together before the playoffs start is some sort of analytically brilliant move. I'm not so sure about that. In baseball, we never really had a big deal in terms of a batting order, and everyone should be at the same place in the batting order every single game. I want at least 100 games with with Miguel Cabrera in the cleanup spot. It's not about that. You get a feel for the people around you for when you're hitting, when you're running, what the tendencies are, but in basketball, it's different. If you speak to any basketball player, they'll tell you that having court awareness is all that matters, knowing exactly where your teammates are going to be and when they're going to be there. It's like a quarterback and a wide receiver. The quarterback needs to know that the wide receiver is going to be where the quarterback is throwing the ball because very often he's throwing it while getting tackled to a place where the receiver is supposed to be, not just in the playbook, but even in a broken play. In the NBA, it's the same. It's critical for George and Leonard to get to play together. So I was thinking about why, in fact, the Clippers do this, and I realized it's because the postseason in the NBA is a two-month postseason, and they're worried about Leonard's knees and health. They're worried about George's shoulder, and I'm fine with all of that. But here's my suggestion. If you want to do any sort of load management or figuring out which stars to play when, why don't you make sure you first have the chemistry for long, as long-time teammates. 
not the first time two players are playing together. It would be the same as right now the Lakers telling Davis and uh, LeBron not to play together or Russell Westbrook joining the Rockets and saying, hey, he doesn't need to play with James Harden. That's incredibly wrong. He has to play with James Harden if you're the Houston Rockets and you want to perform. So the Clippers continue to do things that actually surprise me. And I don't know if they think they're smarter than any other team or if just the Kawhi Leonard is actually more hurt. And that takes on an entirely different subject because when you're signing these players in the NBA to these max deals, Kyrie Irving with the Nets is another example of that. A max deal with the Nets, dealing with a shoulder injury, what kind of performance are you going to get? And you're stuck with that as your max player and the best you can hope to do, like when the Heat traded Whiteside to the uh, to the Blazers, they did that because they weren't getting performance. That's different than not getting play because of injury. So if Leonard's knees are as bad as we think they are, that could be a huge problem for the Los Angeles Clippers. I personally think this is just about load management, and this whole knee contusion thing is just a way of making sure that he plays the minimum number of games that is allowable under league rules prior to the postseason. Major League Baseball is doing something that uh, is getting a lot of attention today, and I want to explain it to everyone because it's major for all of our listeners, not just in big cities, but anywhere you are around the United States. The way Major League Baseball works is as follows. We have a big league team that has 25 people on it who are active at all times. Don't confuse that with the 40-man roster. That means there's 40 players on your big league roster, but only 25 can play at a time and be active at a time. As you know, everybody else is in the minor leagues, assuming they're not injured. So there's AAA, which is the highest level of the minor leagues, then AA, single A, low season A, which is sort of a short season single A ball. Then there's rookie ball, which is even lower. Then you've got Gulf Coast League, which is like where the Marlins play a Gulf Coast team. It's just players who are really young, just got drafted. And then you've got Dominican rosters as well. All in all, you've got between 180 and 200 minor league players. Not all of those are going to become major leaguers. So as owners, we had a strange epiphany. We were wondering why we're spending so much money on the minor league system. What do I mean? It means that we pay for every single player, no matter where they play and what level. We're paying all of the expenses of those players. We're paying for all the coaches. Basically, the expense of the product for these minor league teams comes out of owners and presidents' pockets. Let's just say owners. Except the value of these teams keeps going up because of the product that we are supplying. So many, many major league owners were starting to buy minor league teams because they realized, I can buy a minor league team for five, 10, 15 million dollars and it keeps going up in value. And it makes sense that I can own the team because then I don't have to hear the complaining of the minor league owners who want better players, who want me to sign players who are more expensive, who I know are not going to be in the big leagues, but have a chance of winning a minor league ring. I liked it when our minor league teams would win, but it didn't mean anything to me. And here's why. The goal of a major league team is to win at the major league level. Don't let any Major League Baseball team or owner tell you that having a good farm system and winning at the minor league level is what matters, because it's not. You can develop players who aren't winning on a team. Why do minor league teams not win? Because they are surrounded, prospects who are going to be big leaguers are surrounded by people like me 
who have no chance to ever be a major leaguer. They're called fillers. We don't pay them a lot. They have no chance to be a major league baseball player. They don't know it. We know it. So they're there because you have to play nine on nine. But it occurred to us as Major League Baseball management that why would we keep paying so much to have so many players in a system that don't have a chance, that we don't want to waste resources on developing or coaching or anything? So Major League Baseball has said to Minor League Baseball, we need some changes. We want better ballparks for our players, and we want fewer teams, like 42 fewer teams. That's the rumor going around right now that Major League Baseball has told Minor League Baseball that they want to eliminate 42 out of the all of the minor league teams, say 200 minor league teams. The problem with that is, one, they're not going to end at 42. It'll either be 41 or 43. I don't think they want to associate Jackie Robinson's number with the number of teams that are going to contract for minor league baseball. But all of minor league baseball is absolutely going crazy right now because all the lost jobs that are going to take place because of this. But don't just think about the player jobs because those are players who don't have a chance and they're lucky to call themselves professionals. Those are the players who get to put on their resume when they go into the world, business or otherwise, that they were a professional baseball player because they played a few seasons on the minor league level. They were not big leaguers. Let's make sure we're clear. But those aren't the jobs I'm talking about. I'm talking about all the people who work for the teams who are going to get contracted. I was a part of contraction talk when I worked for the Montreal Expos. I understand what it means to contract a team. You're not only taking away ownership of the team from the owner, but you're taking away dozens and dozens, in a big league case, hundreds and hundreds of jobs from people who will have to find work elsewhere. I understand why it's a difficult issue. That said, it makes perfect business and financial sense what MLB is doing. Are they using this as leverage to get a better agreement with the minor leagues? Yes. Is there an opportunity for teams to have fewer players in their system? Yes. The Houston Astros went from nine affiliates to seven. They eliminated two of their affiliates in the last few years, thereby explaining to the rest of baseball not just that they're smarter than everyone, which they're not, but that they were willing to implement something faster, which we all should have done. So all of the owners got together and voted 30 to 0. That's called a landslide vote. You only need 23. 30 to 0 said we want to make this deal with the minor leagues that says we will not continue to support that many teams and players. It's the right business move. It may not be the popular move, and you're going to read a lot of articles and hear a lot of takes from a lot of people who are going to scream and yell about all the little cities around the country who are losing their minor league teams who've had them for hundreds of years and how hard it is for the clubhouse manager or the usher or the ticket taker or the head of marketing who's going to lose their job. And my answer to that to you is this. What about the jobs that are lost because you all purchase things on Amazon? or every time you buy a book online or buy any item online. So before we cry about jobs lost because of progress, just know that you are contributing to that as well. And I'm fine with it. We are trying to improve the game of baseball, make it more efficient. Why? So we can all do better from a revenue standpoint, get better players, better product, better games for you and for me. I'm going to be doing a, uh, a new Twitter segment here for you uh, every day. If you follow me on Twitter at David P. Sampson, my direct messages are open. 
I read almost all of them. I try to read all of them, even when I can't understand them or the language is such that I'd rather not repeat them. I'm going to do a segment every day on Nothing Personal that comes from you. Whether you're listening or watching, DM me at David P. Sampson and just tell me what story you want to hear. Well, I got one yesterday that I'm definitely bringing up, and it was from a fan of the Washington Redskins. And the question was, why will Daniel Snyder not sell his team? They are begging. This person DM'd me, and it was fantastic, going through all of the trials and tribulations that have gone on in Washington since Daniel Snyder took over. And it was a pretty simple question. Why wouldn't he just sell when he reads all the negativity? And then I responded and thought about this. They fly banners over City Field in New York asking the Wilpons to sell the Mets. Our owner in Miami, his name is Jeffrey Loria, he was begged to sell, please bring in anybody, except they wanted John Henry to sell before him. He owned the Marlins before the Red Sox. And then they wanted Wayne Huizenga to sell because he tore up the team after winning the World Series. The moral is, when your team isn't winning, you always think it's the owner's fault. Do you think Daniel Snyder doesn't want to win? Do you think he's trying to basically sabotage his entire franchise? It's not that he wants to satisfy you as a fan. He wants to satisfy him. Because it's not enough for these owners that their team goes up in value by the hundreds of millions of dollars. They also want the ego of what it is to get a championship trophy from the commissioner at the end of a season. And then they want to do it again. And do you know how owners react when you ask them to sell? Like this. That's me not saying anything. Silence. They don't care. There's not one owner who looks at a petition or an email or a plane with a flag or any sort of article anywhere by anyone who says, please sell. And then they say, you know what? You're right. I'm going to sell. And the reason they don't is they don't care what you think. They say they do. And they say that they do things in the best interest of the fans. Every time an owner wins a World Series or a championship, the first thing you're taught to say when you hold your trophy is, and I, this is for the fans, and I want to thank you for being the best fans in all the world. Redskins Nation is the greatest in the world. I love Red Sox Nation. Everyone has a nation. I love my team. The Nationals did it when they just won the World Series. They said, this is for all the people in Washington. Here's a little surprise for you. It's not. I love that you're a fan of a team because I'm a huge fan of a team, but I have no illusion that an owner owns a team just to make me happy. An owner owns a team because it's one of the great ego things that can never happen. So you think Daniel Snyder is going to pay attention to one thing that we're saying and sell his team? It's actually quite the opposite. I almost think it's inversely correlated. And the more we yell for him to sell, the least less likely it will be that he does. So my advice to you, is move on to the next thing, which I will do right now because I have something that happened that is sort of surprising. When David Tepper bought the Carolina Panthers, this was a uh, this was an interesting buy. Jerry Richardson was forced to sell the Panthers. Uh, he violated several, I'm going to say laws, but certainly codes, certainly ethics, and he was basically forced out. I'm not sure it was bad as Donald Sterling, but it was certainly in the same sphere as Sterling. So David Tepper bought the Carolina Panthers, and you recall they went to a Super Bowl a few years ago. And so I was very interested to understand when he took the mic 
after another blowout loss. And I'll cut through all of the red tape, and I'll just tell you that his main quote was, I want to get it exactly right for you, so you have it. Quote, I won't accept long-term mediocrity. Please marinate on that for a minute. The owner of your favorite team said, I won't accept long-term mediocrity. Short-term mediocrity, eh, it'll be be okay. Long-term, no good. How many years to a long-term, David? I know that you have $12 billion of fortune, and I know that you want to win. I believe that. And I know you've got a Cam Newton situation that also needs to be dealt with. But please, this is not like running a hedge fund. When you run a team, you've got to pay attention to the words you say because people like me are going to hang on every word and we're going to decode it and tell all of your fans what you really mean. And what David Tepper meant is that he has no idea how to stop the losing. He's going to try to fire Rivera and figure out to get a new GM and maybe get rid of Newton and figure out how to draft a good quarterback. Of course, he's going to try those things because owners do because they want to win and they want to keep taking your money and have you as season ticket holders and have good corporate relationships. But when every any time an owner talks about mediocrity, you can rest assured that they will end in mediocrity. So David, instead, when you never meet the media and you're a new owner, just take the microphone, if you really want to, and say the following. Passionate. Fans want your passion, David. Say, I am angry and I'm not going to take it anymore. I will not take this losing. It is unacceptable what's happened for this franchise. And I am going to make changes to guarantee that we do better next year. Book it. Count on it. That's what fans would love to hear. Instead of the quote, I want to have it so you know, we won't accept long-term mediocrity. Huh? I got another one for you. Antonio Brown. Uh, So Antonio Brown, I'm bored of talking about Antonio Brown, but then he does something today that's too good to pass up. For those of you on Twitter, and if you are, you're supposed to be following me at David P. Sampson. But if you're not, here was a tweet that he just sent. Let me give you background. Did you know that Antonio Brown just had an eight-hour meeting with NFL officials? Did you know that Antonio Brown believes that he is due tens of millions of dollars in salary that is not being paid to him? Okay, that's background. So what did Antonio Brown tweet? The following, and I quote, Mr. Kraft, no comma, just Mr. Kraft. That's the owner of the Patriots. You know him, Robert Kraft. I apologize sincerely to you and your organization, exclamation point. All I wanted to be was an asset to the organization, semicolon. Sorry for the bad media and the drama, exclamation point. Thank you sincerely, no commas anywhere, A.B. Couple things, A.B. Number one, you didn't write this tweet. I'm just going to say it. I follow you on Twitter. I think your tweets are fine and funny and interesting. I'm not sure you've ever used a semicolon, and I'm sure that 99.9% of this world can't use a semicolon correctly. However, in this case, it was done perfectly by your PR advisor or your lawyer. Secondly, this is not the way to get your money back or to get signed by another team. There is no owner or GM or team president or teammate who looks at Twitter and says this is an acceptable form of communicating to anything other than the people. 
not to an individual. Do you think Robert Kraft is on Twitter looking at your Twitter and saying, oh, thank you, A.B., I appreciate the apology? Absolutely not. A, if he follows you, he's not paying attention. B, that demographic, I'm not even sure he's on Twitter. But C, if you're trying to make a real apology, a sincere apology, as Kamala says it was, why wouldn't you do that in person? You don't have his cell phone? I could get it for you. His email? The name of his assistant? Anybody? Bueller? Instead, you tweet out something that is so clearly not in your words? I was very disappointed in this, and the reason I was disappointed is that it was clear to me this was simply about his image rehabilitation and his desire to find a way to get his money back. It's not going to work, A.B. If you had come to me, here's the plan I give you. You sit with the NFL for eight hours, and you work out a reclamation plan. You've got to reclaim your status as someone who's wanted on a team. The first thing you do is clear up any issues that are outstanding, any grievances against the NFL. You think that it's possible that with pending grievances you're going to get signed? It's not possible. Not going to happen. Clean up any issues with the NFL. Then come up with a 10-point plan. We do this all the time with a team. We have a 10-point PR plan of everything we are going to do, and we follow it to the letter. A tweet to Mr. Kraft that says what you said is number 12 on my 10-point plan. A.B., you can definitely do better, and I expect it next time. You know, right now there's something going on. There are uh, owners' meetings going on, and... uh, Here's how owners' meetings work in Major League Baseball. So they happen four times a year, and we sit down, and the first day they're committee meetings. So I've told you that I'm on the competition committee, and I was on the international committee. So during the course of the first day of meetings, they're smaller, like 20 people in a room, and you've got uh, representatives from the commissioner's office, and you work on specific agendas just in those committees. Then you've got what's called the commissioner's dinner, where everybody goes to a dinner. The commissioner says a few words. Hey, welcome to the meetings. The November meeting is congratulations to the World Series winner. You give an ovation to the owner of the team who won. And then you go into the next day. And the next day is a big meeting. It's called the major league meeting when two representatives from each team, sometimes three, sometimes four, you sit at tables. You have not name tags, but you have the name of your team and you're assigned seats, and then they go through an agenda where they give you updates about things that are going on, what's going on with Major League Baseball properties, meaning what's going on with the TV deals, what's going on on the marketing side, what's going on on MajorLeagueBaseball.com or the MLB Network. So it's a series of updates that take place to all of the owners. And then after that, there's something called an executive session. And I'm not cracking the code. Don't worry, Commissioner Manford. I'm not telling you anything that's so secretive. But it's cool anyway. I think it's cool. So then afterwards, there's a meeting called an executive session meeting where it's only 30 people. That's one person per team. And in this executive session, there's no one else but the commissioner and maybe one, maybe one other member of the commissioner's office, maybe Dan Hallam, sometimes one other person, but generally just the commissioner. So the commissioner meets with these 30 men, that's what it's always been, and it's the 30 principal owners of the team. When there's two owners, like in Boston, you've got Tom Warner and John Henry, they have to choose which one goes to this meeting. 
because it's only one. There are zero exceptions. And that's when the commissioner and the teams have real conversation about real issues. Well, today we now have found out, we believe through Jeff Passan at ESPN, that the commissioner has said, quote, I have no reason to believe that the sign stealing extends beyond the Astros at this point in time. Wow. I have no reason to believe that the sign stealing scandal extends beyond the Astros at this time. Well, I do have some reason to believe that it extends because I know that it extends because teams are always stealing signs. What he meant to say was he doesn't believe that there was a center field camera put in any other ballpark that was used to try to relay signs to the dugout? Really? Their investigation has gone through all 30 ballparks? Everybody has a center field camera. Is he sure already this quickly? This is about PR and trying to catch up to what happened this postseason, where I promise you the commissioner was livid about the Astros, not about what they did, livid about the attention that was taken away from the World Series, livid about ratings being down, livid about all that went on with their assistant GM Taubman and now with the sign stealing, livid. So what he's trying to do is say we've investigated and now I've got no reason to believe. But then he doubles down and he says the general warning I issued to clubs, I stand by. It certainly could be all of those things, but my authority under the Major League Constitution would be broader. And what he's talking about is what the punishment could be. There's a lot of talk at the GM meetings that just happened last week in baseball about what the punishment should be for the Astros. GMs were livid, but not because of the sign stealing, because they can't stand Jeff Lunau and Jim Crane. And they would like to see him go down, as in get fired, get eliminated. The same way they wanted A.J. Preller eliminated with the scandal with the medical forms back when I was with the Marlins and we traded for a player and found out he had totally other medical records that we never got. MLB sent a memo to teams that said, do not use electronic equipment to steal signs. The Red Sox did it in 17 the and got disciplined. The Astros did it in 17 and probably never stopped. So what could the commissioner do? He could take away draft picks. He could fine him a couple million dollars. Is that going to be meaningful? Is that a deterrent? Do you know if I win a World Series, my team goes up in value by about $100 million? Do you know if I win a World Series or get to the World Series, that year I've got annual revenue increase of at least $50 million net? And you're telling me that a $2 million fine is going to be a deterrent? Now, he does have the authority. That is for sure. He could suspend people. He could make them sell. That would take a lawsuit, though. I'd like to see the commissioner choose to put his full weight of his powers behind something other than the Astros using a camera to steal signs. There are so many other issues in baseball where he could take his power out for a drive. Don't do it here, commissioner. But he did talk about what the gravity is of the allegations. And he talked about it in a general terms. This is exactly how commissioners talk. Any allegations that relate to a rule violation that could affect the outcome of a game or games is the most serious matter. We are ongoing in our investigation. Let me decode that for you because he's talking about gambling. He's not talking about anything other than if there is something going on during the course of a game that impacts the outcome of the game, 
that has a direct correlation to gambling. And gambling is the new hemisphere. It's the new world. It's the new frontier. It has dollar signs all over it. The commissioner's office believes that every team in baseball's value could increase by close to $200 million each simply because of deals that could be done on the gambling side. When I started in baseball, it was verboten to even have an advertisement behind home plate that tried to promote the local Indian tribe. We're quite a way past that, aren't we? We're not just promoting the local tribes anymore, are we? We're now talking about gambling on games. And you can rest assured that within the next five years, fans at the games will be able to gamble on those games exactly the way they do in Europe. Have you ever been to an EPL game? Yes, you can gamble on the game while you're going to get a beer and a dog. And companies pay a lot of money to the teams for the right to do that. That's going to happen in sports in the United States. It's a guarantee. So therefore, the integrity of the game takes on huge importance. You think that the Black Sox scandal is the worst scandal that could happen in Major League Baseball? You think Pete Rose betting on someone else is worse? It is. Imagine if you've got players who are making half a million or a million dollars, and they're approached by characters who are less than savory, and they're said, hey, we're trying to get any information out of the clubhouse. Who's hurt? Who's not hurt? Who's tired? Who's playing today? You announced a certain lineup, but are there any changes? Who's the next pitcher out of the bullpen? Who's not available? I had a list before every game of every player who wasn't available. I knew every player who was going to pinch hit, every pitcher who was going to pitch. This is information that could be used in gambling. Obviously, I never did that and never would do that. But those days are changing. So what the commissioner is saying with his, say, with his line that a rule violation that affects the outcome of a game is the most serious matter, he does not mean a camera. He's talking about the possibility that you could have one tiny integrity issue that could take one sponsorship dollar away or make one fewer dollar be bet on baseball. And it's a bigger deal than you think because baseball is way behind the NFL, the NBA in terms of dollars bet on its games. And MLB wants to catch up and they will try to catch up. Last night I got a chance to watch a movie um, Speaking of money and speaking of the fact that people do crazy things for money, it's a movie called The Laundromat, which is on Netflix and is directed by Steven Soderbergh. Yes, Steven Soderbergh, you know him. He directed Ocean's Eleven, 12 and 13, uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He directed uh, a movie I loved called Traffic and one more that I wanted to tell you about, Out of Sight, one of my favorite movies with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. But this movie is unlike any other movie he's ever directed. It stars Meryl Streep to start with, and it also stars Gary Oldham and Antonio Banderas. But it's not about a laundromat where you fold your clothes. It's about a laundromat where you clean your money. And this is not a made-up story. This is 96 minutes of truth, and it happened right here in Miami. Actually, I'm in Fort Lauderdale. I hate when people say, where are you from? And they say, Miami. Well, but you live in Fort Lauderdale. I'm from Fort Lauderdale. But there was something called the Panama Papers three years ago. If you don't know what it is, you should be learning about it because it did impact you. 
This is a story about what rich people do to get richer at the expense of poor people. If you think tax avoidance is something new, it's not. If you keep reading about all the big companies, whether you're the president or all these big corporations who with billions of dollars of income paid no taxes, and you wonder why you with your salary have to pay an income tax while these companies don't, it's because of something like the laundromat. So take the 96 minutes and figure out for yourself where you stand on this issue. It's not a very good movie, but the point of the movie is far more important. I'm surprised that Steven Soderbergh took the time to make this because it reminded me a little of the Adam McKay movies like The Big Short, where we're trying to take a very complicated issue and make it very simple for you, the listener or the viewer. I don't want to make this issue simple for you. I would rather you took the time to learn about it so you can make an informed decision about what you think about certain tax issues that will be front and center when it comes to the next election. So go on Netflix. You won't like the movie. I'm giving it two stars at most. I like reviewing it bats, actually. It's two bats. But the subject of the movie is a five-bat subject. There's no twist at the end. There's no suspense. You know exactly what's going to happen. It's acted completely over the top. But get through all of that muck. Put on a mask and a snorkel. And when you come up for air, you will be much more educated on a very, very important issue. It's called the laundromat. Something else is going on. Uh, why are all these teams? Did you guys see a picture? I saw it just yesterday. Uh, when I grew up, I, I, I went to University of Wisconsin. And I'm a Badger. I was born in Milwaukee. And I loved the Brewers. And they had a great logo. Uh, their logo was, it looked like a ball and a glove. But it really was an M and a B. You know all those logos, like the FedEx logo that has the arrow in it? And if you look closely at certain logos, you can look on your Google and, and look at all these logos where you didn't see something that's there. Well, the Brewers had the M and the B as part of their logo, and it was this beloved ball glove logo. And then they changed it, which is what owners do when they're trying to sell more merchandise. That's the reason why we change our logos. We always tell you it's because we don't like the way it looks or we're trying to start with new colors. It's just trying to sell more hats to you and make you buy more jerseys. That's why everyone changes. I respect greatly the Yankees who keep the pinstripes, have the pinstripes, never change anything. Unfortunately, not all of us can be like the Yankees where everyone's wearing Yankee stuff over and over again. With other teams, they get excited. Fans get excited to buy new jerseys. But the Brewers went back to the future and they unveiled their new jerseys for 2020. And instead of being a throwback jersey, it's actually now their new jersey. And the Padres did the same thing. I'd like to understand why franchises keep turning to nostalgia. And then I figured it out. After much thought and contemplation, I realized that they believe that they know their audience. It's the most important thing when you're selling a product. Who's buying my product and how do I get them to like it more so they can buy it more? Unfortunately, the baseball audience, have we've, as we've discussed on Nothing Personal, it's an aging demographic where nostalgia is a great thing. But guess what? We're trying to get the demographic younger. We're trying to get different fans involved. The people who I need to be Brewers fans don't remember the ball and glove when it was the primary logo. And that's fine. 
let's take a logo and make it our own as a team. The Marlins did this. They changed their logo, not because they were going nostalgic, even though there's some teal, and they were trying to appeal to the old Miami. They were doing it just to get rid of anything that I had been a part of creating. But at least they tried to come up with a logo that's new and that I hope they stick with. All these teams that keep changing, going back and forth, doing the throwback, the San Diego Padres are back to brown, and are they doing camouflage, are they not doing camouflage? That is not going to increase their revenue in the long term the way they think it is. What increases revenue is brand affinity. What helps brand affinity is brand attachment. What helps brand attachment is brand recognition. What helps brand recognition is brand consistency. Consistency. Choose something, stick with it. You're trying to go across demographics, choose something that can appeal to everyone and make it a part of your own. I believe the Brewers and Padres have made a mistake. It's going to be interesting to me to see how these uniforms sell. If you're a Brewers fan or a Padres fan and you buy these jerseys, just remember every time you buy something, you're promoting the thought of the marketing people and of ownership as they look at the numbers. Use your old stuff and get it on eBay. Man, I lost my pick of the day yesterday. How is it that they couldn't score 53 points in Mexico? Just explain that to me. Explain how the final score was 24-17. I'm staying awake and watching the game. It was a good game. I'm just rooting for points, and I'm getting field goals. I was angry. So I'm going again with a pick today, and I'm going to get this one. I can't figure out why the line is what it is in the Golden State Warrior Memphis Grizzly game. Uh, the Grizzlies are actually a mediocre home team. Golden State, I'll grant you, is horrific with all the injuries. We've talked about them. We actually went against them when we went with Boston. Do you remember that pick? I had the Celtics minus eight over the Warriors, and the Celtics only won by five. I'm not giving up on the Warriors. And the reason I'm not giving up is that I'm perfectly fine with them being bad. And I'm perfectly fine with them trying to cover against the Grizzlies. That's my pick. What I'm not fine with is how many national TV games the Warriors have this year. Why does this happen? I'd like to explain. Schedules are done as follows. Each team has a local TV deal. Let's take the local team here. The Miami Heat have a deal with Sun Sports, which used to be owned by Fox and is now owned by Sinclair. Part of their contract is they get paid a bunch of money the Heat do, and in return, they have to make a certain number of games available to Sun Sports to be shown on Sun Sports. If there's a nationally televised exclusive game, that's a game that's not eligible to be shown on Sun Sports. So if I have a contract that says 75 out of 82 games will be shown on my local TV carrier, that means that only seven games are eligible for an exclusive National television window. Now, you're telling me if you're paying attention out there that there are side-by-side windows in basketball where if it's on TBS or TNT or another network, you can watch it on your local network. I'm here to tell you how the contracts actually work. Schedules are done by all the local TV networks in advance before Steph Curry gets injured, before they know that the Warriors are going to be so terrible. They choose the matchups and the games. There's no flex in the NBA. So we are completely stuck with the Golden State Warriors on national television because the entire schedule was done in advance. 
why is this a bad plan for the NBA and all of the networks who show NBA games? Because of things that happen right now. We've talked about load management as being a problem, but that you can solve. I can make the best players play because when I'm choosing the Clippers and I don't get George or Kawhi, I might as well be choosing the local YMCA team. It's the same thing with the Lakers. You think that anyone wants wants to watch the Lakers if Davis and LeBron aren't playing? Only huge fans want to watch the Lakers at that point. But the point of a nationally televised game is to make it more broad. With the Warriors, they are a broadly based team. Except not now. So, the way to fuel and change this is to have the ability to work with not just the national broadcasters, but with each of the local broadcasters, because there aren't as many anymore. It's consolidated ownership now more than it was. We have to get together and discuss how to flex some games, because it is critical to the overall health of the National Basketball Association that these games are watched, that people outside of Golden State care about these games. And to do it, I need my best players playing And I need my surprise teams getting attention. NFL does a great job of that. If you were supposed to have a nationally televised game, you can be flexed out of it later in the season. Doesn't work that way in the NBA. And it certainly should. I I got gronked yesterday. I actually got gronked today. My word of the day yesterday was gronked. If you didn't listen to the show, uh, if you did, thank you for subscribing and downloading. Please don't forget to rate. Five stars would be helpful. Follow on Twitter, David P. Sampson. This is nothing personal, but you know that. So my word of the day, we do that every day, was gronked, as in a verb, what happens when you're misled by a player into believing that they're going to do something that they're not going to do. Gronkowski said that he had a big announcement for today, and I thought there was a chance he was going to come back and play because he missed it so badly, but he didn't want to deal with the preseason He didn't want to deal with the early season, and he wanted to choose a team that was going to make it to the postseason. That makes sense to me. And then I saw what he announced. Yes, he announced that he's not coming back at all to play, but instead, during the Super Bowl in Miami this February, he is hosting the party of all parties. Now, do you think you'll go to that party? Do I think I'll go to that party? We have no chance of going to the party. Tickets are $149, and that's face value. I'm sure they'll be available in the secondary market for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, because the party is going to be totally dope. I can't believe I just used the word dope. I hope I used it correctly. But it's going to be an absolutely amazing party. But I got completely gronked, and I'm furious with myself. I will never believe any player when they tell me anything Because I know that if they're calling for a big announcement, it's about something they're doing. It's about something they're doing for themselves, not for me. And that's what getting gronked is, and that's what happened to me. I'm angry, actually. So we do a Wait to See segment as well every day on this show, and I keep track because I'm accountable. When I tell you things are going to happen, if they don't happen, I'm going to be honest. And when they do, I'm going to tell you that we got it right. Well, I was watching the game last night, and I was rooting for those 53 points, wondering when they were ever going to come, and they didn't. But what did break out was a par-3 golf course and a bunch of caddies who needed to replace divots. It was as though I were golfing 18, 
which I haven't done in half a decade because all I could do was hit the ground with a divot. And that's what happened here. Why is this noteworthy to me? Because last year, you may remember, the game in Mexico City was canceled. And it was canceled because the field conditions were so poor that they had to move the game that was supposed to be Mexico City. They had to move it to Los Angeles. So this year, they made a huge deal out of how great the field conditions were. They called it grade A. They said there'd been no concert. I think Shakira may have been scheduled. No Shakira. They said no soccer for two weeks. They put in a whole brand new turf. I've done that too, pretending that it's going to make a difference. But you can't replace Saad with two weeks to go before a game and then pretend that it's going to work well because it doesn't work and it's loose because it doesn't have time to bind. And that's what you had last night. You had another disastrous field. So the NFL and the players began to cover it already by saying it was expected, it was fine, there were no complaints. There was even a doctor who came out and said, hey, it's better for knees when the turf gives. Well, I'm not exactly sure what medical school he went to, but I can only tell you that when you plant and you give, it may be better for your ligaments that won't explode, but it's not good for every part of your body, like your hamstring, which can roll up like a carpet. So my way to see is the NFL is going to have to deal with this field situation, And I think they're going to have to make a statement because they have a huge interest in the business in Mexico and they've got to make sure they cover all their bases and that there is no blame put on anybody who had anything to do in Mexico City with putting this game on. So there will be a statement that supports the field condition and the playing condition. You can bet on it. That's my way to see. And if you think that all I care about is business, you're right because it's nothing personal.